Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to Genesis, Genesis 27. Lord willing, we're going to open a series in Genesis here for the next 12 weeks. Uh, They picked up the story, the narrative, if you will, about halfway through. Uh, The name Genesis in Greek uh, means generations, and the Hebrew title of Genesis is literally in the beginning. So the very first words of Genesis reflect the title. The Holy Spirit used Moses, as you might remember, to write the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And Genesis really is a book of beginnings. It records the physical creation of the universe with all its complexity and order. It records the creation of life, including human life. Genesis tells us how sin entered God's perfect world and separated humanity from God. Genesis records the epidemic spread of sin across the entire planet. And it also records how God judged human sin by means of the global flood that destroyed the entire human race with the exception of eight people, Noah's family. Uh, beginning in Genesis 12, however, there's a marked shift in the book of Genesis. Uh, instead of dealing with the entire human race directly, God now embarks on a completely differential program for dealing with the human race. He is now going to set apart a specific covenant people for himself. And God's going to interact directly with these people only, and he's going to use these people as his representatives, as his ambassadors, to reach the rest of the world. And of course, this nation, this covenant set apart people, will be known as the nation of Israel. God initiates this program in Genesis 12 when he appears to a man named Abram, who we know as Abraham, And really, most of Genesis, Genesis 12 through 50, is all about biography. It records the biography of four generations in this one family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. These four people were people of faith who followed God and whom God used to create the nation of Israel, through which he would deal directly with and ultimately send the Messiah to redeem the human race. Abraham was born probably during the Bronze Age, We're not sure exactly when, probably around 2100 B.C., so somewhere around 4,000 years ago. And God promised Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would be the father of a great nation. And even more amazingly, that God would use that nation to bless the entire world. So Abraham was the father of a nation through whom the world would be blessed. At age 90 and age 100, after a 25-year wait, Sarah and Abraham miraculously have a son named Isaac or Isaac, which means laughter, because Sarah laughed when God told her she was going to become pregnant. She was 89 years old, and she laughed. God said, every time you think about your son and you call him Isaac, it will mean laughter. This son, Isaac, is a man of faith. He trusts God enough at about age 37 to get on the altar at Mount Moriah in obedience to God, And when he's 40 years old, Isaac trusts God enough to provide a godly wife for him. He marries Rebekah, the daughter of his cousin Bethuel. 
He marries this woman of faith, and they inherit Abraham's promise that God gave him to bless the world through their descendants. Twenty years later, Isaac is 60, and they have no children yet. Interesting that Sarah was barren for 25 years, and Rebekah was barren for 20 years, and both of them had a promise that God would bless the entire world through their descendants. So Isaac does the godly thing. He prays for his wife, Rebekah. And when Isaac is 60, Rebekah is probably younger, maybe 40. At that point, she finally conceives and becomes pregnant with twins. Seems like a very promising beginning. But a good beginning, as you know, does not guarantee a good ending. Isaac and Rebekah will begin extremely well and end extremely poorly. Rebecca notices that the twin babies in her womb are struggling with each other, literally fighting in the womb. When she asks God about it, she is told by the Holy Spirit that there are two nations in her womb and that the older son will serve the younger son by the authority of God himself. When the oldest twin is born, he is red and hairy, and the name, they name him Esau, which means hairy. It literally means hairy like a... A carpet, I mean a lot of hair. He would become the founder of the nation of Edom, which means red. So he was red and hairy when he was born. Jacob, who is born second, comes out of the womb with his hand clutching Esau's heel. That would have been some video, right? Esau is born red and hairy like a red carpet, and his brother Jacob is grabbing his heel on the way out being born. The name Jacob literally means heel catcher, supplanter, or deceiver. Interesting. Even though these boys were twins, they were radically different. Esau is a headstrong, outdoor athletic type who loves to sport hunt. He's really a sportsman. He becomes a rugged nomad. He's always on the move looking for something better. And Jacob is very domestic. Very amiable man. He lives in tents, cares for the flocks. He loves a very predictable home life. And so far, it looks like your typical home, but the very first hint of family pathology shows up in Genesis 25, 28. And this is a recipe for how to screw your family up. Don't do this. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for gain. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Here's the principle. God's priorities for the family are God first, marriage second, children third. When these get out of order, the family becomes disordered. God's priorities for the family are very simple. God first, marriage second, children third. When these get out of order, the family turns into a mess. Now, playing favorites always fractures the foundation of a family. The foundation of a family is unconditional love and acceptance, and playing favorites is absolutely the antithesis of that. This favoritism has split this family into two factions, each headed by a parent who is living out their life through their favorite child. Isaac loves Esau because he loves the wild game that Esau kills and cooks for him. That's some not good basis for loving your children, right? They cook for you. Although I think that free game might be good, but that's probably not a reason enough, certainly not. 
So he's kind of like the high priest Eli. If you go back into the future here a few centuries, Eli was the high priest. He has two sons named Hophni and Phinehas. These are two evil, evil men who are corrupting the office. But it says that Eli did not discipline him because they were stealing the meat from God's sacrifice on the altar and feeding it to him, and he was getting fat. And he liked the food. So he would not discipline his sons. And this says, Isaac loved Esau because he loved the food. Now that's thinking with your belly. Rebekah loved Jacob because he's a lot more like her temperamentally and because God had told her and Isaac before birth that the older would serve the younger. Jacob is the younger, so Rebekah and Isaac know that he is going to be the ruler in the family. He is going to be the heir of the blessing. God has already preordained this. However, both Isaac and Rebekah are wrong to favor one child over another. Matter of fact, here's the core of the problem. Isaac and Rebekah are in sin, not because they love their favorite son more than the other son. They're in sin because they love their favorite son more than their spouse. And they're really in sin because they love their favorite son more than God. Their children are now their idols. This is a child-centered family to the point of idolatry. This is me first, my son next, and God last, and it creates catastrophic consequences. Unfortunately, in our culture today, this is pretty common. Child-centered families are far from um, unique. Many, many families, the desires and interests of the children take precedence over attending church and maintaining healthy marriage relationships. Folks, this is not rocket scientists, but soccer games for junior are not more important than being in God's house. And soccer games should not trump your date night with your spouse if you do such things. Dad and mom are the human architects of the family. The children are not in charge of the family. You are not their pal, you are their parent. Healthy families put God first, marriage second, children third. If you don't do that, you wind up with serious trouble. Now these boys are going to grow up into manhood, and the Bible relates an incident that reveals their character. Esau comes in from hunting, and he's famished. He hasn't caught any game. He hasn't killed anything. He's starving. And Jacob is in the tent cooking a pot of stew. Esau asks Jacob for a meal, and Jacob, instead of just giving the meal, decides to play, let's make a deal. He says, I'll feed you a meal if you sell me your birthright. Such a deal. The birthright is not an insignificant value. It is significant. The birthright is the right of the firstborn son, that's Esau, to inherit a double portion of the estate that dad was going to leave to the children. Number two, it meant that the firstborn was responsible to care for mom and dad in their old age. We give you a double portion of the estate. You're responsible to care for mom and dad in their old age. And most importantly, the birthright was the responsibility of the oldest son to become the spiritual leader and the head of household upon father's death. Not a small deal. Esau is starving, 
And he values the food today more than the birthright tomorrow. He says, you know, I'm going to die anyway if you don't feed me. So here's the birthright. Jacob is not stupid. Jacob says, swear an oath that this deal is real. Esau swears the oath. Jacob feeds his brother. Both sons were wrong. Number one, Esau completely devalued his God-given spiritual responsibilities. The book of Hebrews calls Esau a godless, immoral person, literally a profane person, because he valued the physical appetite more than his spiritual priorities. And Jacob was a selfish manipulator. Jacob did not trick Esau. He did take advantage of his brother's weakness. This was not operating in love. This was operating as a manipulative con. And Jacob demonstrates that he's going to get what he wants, when he wants it, by any means whatsoever. Now, if you turn to Genesis 27, this is almost a theatrical play. It's got plots and subplots, but there's four main characters in this family. You ever seen All in the Family with Archie Bunker? You have an idea of the drama and trauma that these four family members are going to create. Steve Cole says that every person has a theme song for their life. You will either sing, I did it my way, or I did it God's way. One of those two songs will play in your life. In this family tragedy, all four members of this family are self-centered soloists, and they are all singing, I'm going to do it my way. And the truth of it is, to some degree, God will let them have their way, and none of them will get what they really wanted, and the price tag they will pay for having their own way is astronomically high. Genesis 27, verse 1. Now it came about when Isaac was old, and his eyes were too dim to see, that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son, and he said to him, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold now, I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare a savory dish for me such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, so that my soul may bless you before I die. Here's the principle. Finish your life well by deciding every day Every single day, each and every single day, make a decision to do it God's way, not my way. That will not happen automatically. You have to decide every single morning, today I'm going to do it God's way. It will never happen on autopilot. It is a conscious surrender every day of that day, moment by moment, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and Brad Hannock has to do it multiple times a day because I will take the reins back in three minutes, three seconds. Isaac is the core leader in this particular drama. He's about 137 years old now. His sons were born when he was 60. Isaac is father of two sons, Esau and Jacob, who are now 77 years old. You must understand the chronology of this because we look at Esau and Jacob and we think they're teenagers. They are 77 years old. Isaac is 137. Rebecca is probably 20 years younger. She's 117. They have been married almost a century. Isaac is almost blind. Apparently, he's bedfast. 
Apparently, he's confined to his bed. His older brother, Ishmael, Abraham's oldest son, died in 137. Isaac apparently believes he's near death. The reality, he lives 43 more years. He dies at 180. So sometimes, folks, you don't get to leave when you think you want to leave. Many in this room will live longer than you want to live. There will come a day when you're in diapers, you'll be ready to say, Jesus, take me home, right? Your children will be praying that too, by the way. If I were her, I would too. Isaac, Isaac thinks he's dead. Isaac thinks he's dying. And he wants to pass the family's physical and spiritual inheritance to his son Esau. However, there is a serious problem. Esau is disqualified for spiritual leadership and Isaac knows it. Number one, Esau has already sold his birthright to Jacob. He's already traded that right away illegally. Number two, Esau could never fulfill God's promise to Abraham to bless the world through his lineage because 37 years ago, Esau has married two Canaanite wives. And it says that these two wives brought much grief to Isaac and Rebekah. God would never redeem the world with a promised Messiah using a family descendants that follow Satan. They were pagans. Isaac knew that. Strike two. Number three, God had told Rebekah and Isaac before their birth that Jacob was to receive the blessing. The older would serve the younger. So Isaac is busy singing, I'm going to do it my way, not I'm going to do it God's way. At 137 years old, having experienced God's blessing for decades and decades and decades, Knowing that God has chosen Jacob, he is going to bestow the family blessing on Esau in direct defiance to the will of God. You do not want to end your life like this. Now, since he's on his deathbed, he thinks he's on his deathbed, you would think that his thoughts would be on, I better get ready to meet God because I'm nearly dead. However, Isaac is not the strong spiritual leader you would expect the son of Abraham to be. When you read this passage, he appears tremendously passive and tremendously weak. He is scheming to do in secret what he does not have the courage to do openly. He calls Esau on the slide. He says, here's what we're going to do, right? He plans to pass the family's spiritual and material inheritance to Esau that very day without telling his wife, or his other son. He is in, he's conspiring with Esau in secret and in haste. Understand, in that era, a verbal blessing from the father was an oral will. It's like you write a will, you write it down, write a trust, where you want your assets to go when you die, a beneficiary, when you die you want the assets. An oral will was father on the deathbed saying, you get X, you get Y, you get Z, etc., etc. Genesis 49 is probably the principal example of that where Jacob does that to his 12 sons. So this verbal blessing is a passing of the spiritual and material inheritance to the next generation. Generally, this was done publicly. 
it was a great celebration. Father is dying and he is passing on the spiritual material inheritance to his next generation. And this one is done in secret on the QT with half of the family not knowing. So Isaac is plotting to disobey God, deceive his own wife, and disinherit one of his sons. His goals are wrong and his methods are wrong. Scene 2, verse 5. Rebekah was listening while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game to bring home, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Behold, I have heard your father speak to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game and prepare a savory dish for me that I may eat, and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me two young choice goats from there that I may prepare them as a savory dish for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall bring it into your father that he may eat so that he may bless you before his death. Verse 15. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her elder son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son, Verse 16, and she put the skins of the young goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. She also gave him the savory food and the bread which she had made to her son Jacob. Here's the principle. People who try to help God are often control freaks who really don't trust God to do right. Do you know people that try to help God? You know people that think they are God. Sometimes they're the same person. People who try to help God are often control freaks who really don't trust God to do right. Now, Isaac has conspired with his older son Esau to deceive his wife, disobey God, and disinherit Jacob. God's solution was to give Isaac a wife who was more skilled at manipulation and deception than he was. Rebecca could have worked for the CIA. If Isaac was going to benefit Esau at Jacob's expense, then Rebecca was committed to benefit Jacob at both Isaac and Esau's expense. You've got family at odds with each other. She is 117, and her son is 77, and she is helicopter mother to a 77-year-old son. This is a true blue control freak. She knows because the text says she was eavesdropping on Isaac and Esau's conversation. And the form of the verb indicates that this was her habitual practice. Because when there's not honest and open communication in the family, secrets and innuendo prevail and scheming and low trust. So this family hasn't had open communication in years because they're at loggerheads. Isaac is committed to what's in Esau's best interest, and Rachel's committed, I mean, Rebecca's committed to what's in Jacob's best interest, and none of them are saying, what does God want, and how do we obey that? Which is the solution. So she has an elaborate plan to deceive her husband. This is elaborate. Number one, she believes that she can prepare a domestic goat to taste like wild venison. Fool her husband, his taste buds. Furthermore, she's confident that she can pass off Jacob as Esau. 
and thereby deceive her blind husband Isaac into blessing the younger son while thinking he's blessing the older son. She knows Isaac can't see well, and, she, and he's going to have to depend on his senses of touch, taste, smell, and hearing to verify that it really is Esau who he's blessing. So she dresses Jacob in Esau's best clothes that smell like Esau. You know, they didn't launder stuff back then. When you wore clothing, it smelled like you. All of you, right? So Rebecca, she knows that Esau is very hairy and Jacob is really smooth. So she takes goat skins and fastens them to his hands and arms and his neck. Because she's pretty sure that her husband is going to feel his skin to make sure that it's Esau. Rebecca has thought about every contingency. It is highly likely she's been planning this performance for some time. Number one, Esau is 77 years old. He's been married for 37 years. He's got two wives. He lives in his own tents. So how did she get her hands on his best clothes? When you're 117, you've had a lot of years to think about it. She's a clever woman, and she's going to get what she wants. She's gotten a hold of some of his garments. She stashed him in her tent. Remember, this whole drama takes place in a matter of a few hours at best. I'm reading through this, and I'm thinking it's highly unlikely that she's going to fashion goat skins to fit Jacob's arms and neck in a matter of minutes. Because all this has to take place while Esau is away on the hunt. She hears Esau is going to go on hunt. She says, Jacob, you've got to bring me some goats. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to cook them. I'm going to skin them. I'm going to get the skins on you. I've got his garments here. I've thought about this. This all got to happen. Click, 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 click. I'm pretty sure this was planned for quite some time. All of this has to happen while Esau is away. So it's pretty dramatic. We're under a time gun here. And, of course, Jacob, being a godly man, just objects to his mother's no, he objects to his mother's plan, but it's on pragmatic grounds, not on principle. He doesn't say, it's not right, Mom. We're not going to do this. I'm not lying to my dad. He says, will it work? And, and is it safe? You know, what happens if he finds out that I am not who I say to be? Warren Wiersbe says that Jacob is concerned about the 11th commandment. Thou shalt not get caught. So this is situational ethics. In an emergency, emergencies always override ethics. The end justifies the means. And Rebecca is justifying deceiving her husband because, after all, God did promise that the younger will rule over the older, and therefore, I'm just helping God make this happen. Isaac is going to bless the older, and God said he was going to bless the younger. So he needs my help. Just like her mother-in-law, Sarah. Remember? God had told Sarah and Abraham, you're going to have a son. You're going to become pregnant. And it didn't happen for years. And Sarah thinks, well, God's on vacation. I think he needs my help. She tells Abraham, I've got this maid servant we picked up in Egypt when we went down there during the famine. Her name is Hagar. 
why don't we make her your surrogate wife and you sleep with her and we'll produce a son that way? And it worked. The son's name was Ishmael, the father of the Arabian tribes who have been at odds with Israel for 4,000 years. That was a pretty expensive pregnancy, right? God doesn't need our help to fulfill his promises. He needs our obedience. He doesn't need our help. Rebecca should have prayed to God. She should have had an honest conversation with Isaac about God's command. And then she should have left the results up to God rather than taking matters in her own hands. And you know, for us, this is so hard to do. It is so easy to look at this and go, oh my gosh, this is obviously wrong. And yet, when you put us in the right circumstances, every one of us would have said, well, you know, let's, let's do the pragmatic thing. I mean, what works? I mean, that, 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 that's what the right thing to do. I mean, if you don't intervene here, I mean, Isaac could bless the wrong guy and God's plan could not come to fruition. I don't think that's our problem. I think that's God's problem. We all have situations in our life where the Lord says to us, you just do what I told you to do. I will deal with the outcome. That's where we get into trouble. We want to control the outcome. The outcome is not ours to control in the first place. That's God's problem. We are just to obey what we know at this point. What you haven't seen is how did we get here? What's happened in the last 77 years of this marriage that has got them to the point in time where they're actually willing to lie to each other routinely, where open communication has disappeared, where prayer, any sort of spiritual communication between the two of them is ground to a halt. It is terribly easy to neglect your spiritual life to the point where it dries up and blows away, and that's where these couple is. Scene 3, verse 18. Jacob comes to his father and says, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? You got a voice problem. Right? It doesn't sound like he's God. Jacob says to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Get up, please. Eat of my game that you may bless me. Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have the game so quickly, my son? Jacob says, because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come close that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Isaac or not. So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and he said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. Verse 24, and he said, are you really my son Esau? And Jacob said, I am. So he said, bring it to me and I will eat of my son's game that I may bless you. And he brought it to him, that's the game, and he ate and he also brought him wine and he drank. Then Isaac, his father, said to him, please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him, and when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him. Here's the principle. 
God's people must make decisions based on principle, not pragmatics. It is never right to do the wrong thing. It is never right to do the wrong thing. I don't care if the goal is godly, it's never right to do the wrong thing. Jacob is not vicious, but he is morally weak and desperately sinful. He's 77 years old, and he does not rebuke his mother for her obvious plans to deceive her own husband. He doesn't trust God any more than Rebecca does. The truth of it is Jacob desperately wants the blessing from his father, and he wants a bad enough to lie to his own father who's supposed to bless him. Now, is that perverted logic or what? I want my father to give me the blessing of all the good stuff, and I'm willing to lie to him in order to, for him to bless me. Wow. You know, in this scene, Jacob bald-faced lies to his father multiple times. When Isaac asks him who he is, he lies about his identity, and he says, I'm, I, I'm Esau, your firstborn. When Isaac asks him how he was able to kill the game so quickly, Jacob not only lies about the food, he says, my food, but he also lies about God. He drags God into the equation and says, the Lord, your God, caused it to happen to me. And we think, wow, dragging God into this, lying about God, wow, this is pretty serious. I should expect a lightning bolt to hit right on top of your head. And yet we, how many times have you talked to people and they say, the Lord told me, or the Lord led me, or this is God's will that I do, blah, blah, blah. And you look and you go, no, that doesn't run, that runs counter to Scripture. It can't be the Lord's will. We use God to justify what we want to do. And that's exactly what Jacob is doing. And we've said a hundred times in this class, sin makes you stupid. Jacob is lying about God what is utterly convoluted, the very God whose blessing he's trying to obtain. So when Isaac asks him to come close so he can feel him because his voice sounds like Jacob, he lets his dad believe the lie, and Rebekah had already thought about this and had planned for it. That's why she put wool on her son's arms. So Isaac can't see. He's 137. He's getting confused by his conflicting senses. He doesn't know what to believe, so he says... Are you really my son Esau? And Jacob bald-faced lies to his face and said, I am. At the end, Isaac asked Jacob to come close and kiss him, and Jacob, just like Judas, kisses a man he claims to love but really despises. You can't tell me he loves his father if he's going to bald-faced lie to him. That's a violation of the fourth commandment. Honor your father. This is not honoring your father or your mother. Have you noticed the lies are digging a deeper hole? I mean, he's getting in deeper and deeper and deeper. And rule number one, when you're in a hole, stop digging. Be a good first start. So Isaac has rejected obedience to God. He's now trusting his own sense he gets fooled by his own senses, thinking he's blessing Esau, he blesses Jacob. And he blesses Jacob with everything you can imagine. Material wealth, political authority, family dominance, God's blessing, God's protection. As a matter of fact, he said, everybody's going to serve you. 
Wasn't that what God said? The older shall serve the younger. So Isaac completely fulfilled God's will even while he was in radical disobedience. You cannot thwart the will of God. You can break yourself against the will of God, but his plan will come to fruition even through the disobedience of people who will bear the penalty for that disobedience. The real issue is that God did command Isaac to pass the blessing, the family blessing, the promise of descendants from Abraham to Isaac. And down the line, you are to pass that blessing and that promise onto the next generation. And God says, I myself will make that blessing happen because I gave that promise to Abraham and you are to pass that on. These are not just your words, Isaac. When you bless the next generation, you are claiming my promise to Abraham and I will honor that. The only problem is Isaac said, God, I want all that blessing that you promised Abraham and you gave to me. I want to give it to where I want to give it to. God says, that's not your option. I will bless who I want to bless. You are to pass this on to Jacob. And, Esau, and Isaac said, no, I want to pass it on to Esau, even though he's a godless man. So Isaac is in direct rebellion to God because he's attempting to take God's blessing and pass it on to somebody who's godless when God had already decided it was going to be Jacob's. And Jacob is desperately in sin because he's trying to obtain God's blessing by fraud. It's okay to lie. Our world, unfortunately, is comprised increasingly of people who believe that situation ethics are not only right, they're really, really smart. I don't even have time to go through all. You could just go through the political history of this country for the last few years and see example after example after example of people who believe that the pragmatic decision is, will it work today? What it looks like five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, well, we'll deal with that then. Folks, we are only called to do one thing. Do it God's way. Just do it God's way. And you know what his way is? He already wrote it down. It's real simple. Scene four. This is dramatic. Now it came about as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. I've looked at this scene on more than one occasion. I thought, you know, Lord, wouldn't it have been interesting if you just delayed Jacob a little bit and sped Esau up a little bit, and they met outside Isaac's tent? And Esau looks at him and he goes, you're wearing my clothes, dude. And it looks like you brought a meal to my father. That would have been an interesting confrontation, but that's not how it happened. Jacob just gets out of the tent, gets away. Brother comes in and he's got his game. Verse 31. He also made savory food brought to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that he may bless me. Isaac, his father, said to him, Who are you? And he said, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently. It, it, the literal 
verb here is he quaked, he shaked exceedingly. And he said, who was he then that hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate of all of it before you came and blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. Verse 34. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceeding great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Isaac said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Then Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob, supplanter, heel catcher, liar, deceiver? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright. And behold, now he has also taken away my blessing. Here's the principle. The past is irrevocable. But for the Christian, it's not irreparable. God forgives our past and has eternal plans for our future. The past is irrevocable. You're not going to change the past. But it's not irreparable for the Christian. Because God forgives our past and has eternal plans for our future. Now, you must understand Esau is not a person of faith. Esau is not committed to obeying God. He's committed to disobeying God. And Esau is wailing and weeping the, the, the cry of regret, not the cry of repentance. He is not sorry that he has not followed God. He's sorry he didn't get what he wanted. So this is the voice of regret. The reality is, apart from Jesus Christ... Regret will not change the irrevocable nature of our decisions. We make decisions in life, and those decisions have consequences, do they not? And those consequences cannot be altered. God will not go back and change your past. We have made decisions, and we live with those decisions for the rest of our life. Now, the one thing he does do is he forgives the past, it's not irreparable. In other words, God won't change the past, but he will fix and forgive the consequences in the future. Here's the reality. This is all about Esau. Esau has legally sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of stew, probably decades before. He brings his wild game to dad, and he's expecting his father to overturn the deal. He says, I legally sold my birthright to brother Jacob, and I want you to abrogate that deal and bless me even though I legally sold it to him. So I'm willing to shaft my brother, and I want dad to do it. When Isaac finds out he's been deceived, it says Isaac trembled violently. He's not trembling violently because he's been deceived. He's terrified because he has tried to lie to God by disobeying his explicit command, and now he's been found out. God has accomplished his plan of blessing Jacob despite Isaac's disobedience. And Isaac is terrified. Isaac should be terrified. Esau blames his brother for stealing his birthright. How many of you know people that it's never their fault? It is never their fault. It is always somebody else's fault. They could boldface murder somebody right in front of you. You go, well, I mean, they just pushed their heart right into that bullet. You know, they just did. There are some people like that. By the way, sin never takes responsibility. Sin always blames somebody else. So Esau blames his brother for stealing his birthright, even though he sold it to him, and for stealing his blessing. Uh, he conveniently forgot that he didn't value it in the first place. He despised it, and he sold it for a bowl of stew. 
That doesn't sound like you value it. A bowl of stew is not worth that much, right? So Esau's weeping tears of regret, but certainly not repentance. Here's Esau's problem. He wants the blessing of God, but he doesn't want to become the kind of person that God can bless. We often ask God for blessing. We say, God, please bless. I, I, blessing is divine favor. We say, God, bless my plans, bless my schedule, bless my appointments, bless my phone calls, bless my children and grandchildren. God, I want your divine favor to cover my life. When's the last time you said, God, make me blessable? Make me the kind of person that you can bless. Because if I'm a rebel, if I'm godless, if I'm your enemy, if I'm committed to doing it my way, if I am not submissive to you, why would God want to bless somebody who is against him? Why would God want to give divine favor on somebody who wants to tear down everything he's trying to do? That makes no sense at all. He wants the blessing of God, but he doesn't want to become the kind of person God could bless. And today we see this as an epidemic. People live life with no thought of God. As a matter of fact, most of our world wants nothing to do with God, right? Leave me alone. Just let me live my life. I don't want your interference. I don't want to hear from you. I don't want to hear from your people either. Just let me live my life my way. And God is a gentleman, and he will give you your way. However, what do these same people do when tragedy strikes? Where was God? He should have protected me from that. I thought you told him to leave. I thought you told him to get out of your life, get out of your school. We're not going to listen to your Ten Commandments. Matter of fact, we didn't want to see him on the wall. Leave us alone. God does when tragedy strikes. God owes me protection. They want the blessings of God. They just don't want God himself. And this is the time of year when we see this behavior in our own families. We see children who want the Christmas gifts, but do they value the giver of the gifts? Mom and dad, grandpa and grandma, aunts and uncles. We do this with God all the time. And we do it because we fail to say thank you. How many of you have thanked God for the rain? Don't stop thanking him. We need more. So when we ask him for the rain, thank him for the blessing. That would be a good start. We ask God to solve our problems. We have prayer requests, lots of prayer requests. No problem with that. God says, bring your request to me. By the way, thank me when I answer them. So you look at this drama, and you realize all four were committed to do it their way, not God's way. Man, they were right there with Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. By the way, Frank is not singing that song today. Nobody sings that song, either in heaven or in hell. It is never your way. It is always God's way. So these four people all wanted to do it their way, and nobody got what they wanted. None of them. And the price tag they paid was astronomical. 
So Isaac tried to disobey God. He got deceived by his own senses, which he was trusting. And he blessed the son he had intended to disinherit. And he disinherited the son he had intended to bless. Because by his own words, he gave Jacob authority over Esau. He got exactly 180 degrees what he didn't want. He was at odds with his wife beforehand. They'd been married about 100 years. And he lived another 43 years with this woman. And she had to live with him. That was a lonely tent. And he never saw either one of his sons again. Rebecca, she got it. She got the blessing for Jacob that she wanted. The price tag is she had to deceive her husband to get it. Eh, sometimes the ends justify the means, right? Not ever. In the end, the price tag she paid is she lost both her sons. Esau was going to kill Jacob. So she sends Jacob to Haran, 500 miles away, to her family. And Esau moves east of the Dead Sea to Edom. Jacob stayed in Haran, not for a few weeks. She said, you know, your father's going to be dead soon. That's never a good assumption to make. So when he dies, Esau will get over his anger and you can come back in a few weeks. Well, Isaac lived another 43 years. Jacob uh, stayed in Iran for more than 20 years. And by the time he got back, she was already dead. She never saw her son again, either one of them. Jacob, the deceiver, he gets the blessing. Except he's got to leave town in a hurry so he doesn't get killed. This is a homeboy. He's used to living in tents. And he's now going to be a, a, a wanderer. He gets kicked out of the house because he's running for his life. And Jacob is the quintessential deceiver, and he gets deceived at least twice. One, in Iran, he gets fooled into marrying the wrong sister by her conniving, lying father, Laban, who's a better deceiver than he is. I mean, he thinks he's marrying Rachel. He wakes up in the morning. It literally says, after the honeymoon, the first morning he wakes up and looks and sees her face and says, this is the wrong sister. Yeah, that would be, uh, I'm the deceiver and I got deceived, rather dramatically deceived, right? Later on, his own sons deceive him when they sell his favorite son. By the way, Jacob plays favorites just like Isaac played favorites, just like Abraham played favorites. The sins of the fathers get passed to the children, right? And so his sons are so jealous of Joseph, they sell him into slavery and they tell Jacob he's been killed by a wild beast and they keep that secret for decades. Jacob gets deceived. Esau, he's planning on breaking his oath to Jacob. He wants to take the birthright back, and he wants his father to do it. And he winds up being, instead of getting blessed, he winds up being cut off from God's covenant blessing. He winds up being at war with God's own people, the Israelites, for generations. Actually, centuries, Edom was at war with Israel. Rather than us being committed to getting our own way and singing, I did it my way, you will have much more joy in life if you just simply say, I don't even need to understand it. I don't need to understand the future. I don't need to guarantee the outcome. My job is very simple. God said it. 
I'm going to do it. And God will provide blessings in your life beyond your understanding. This is an example, by the way, Scripture is filled with both examples and warnings. Examples are people who are living for God, and that Bible says, live like them, do that. Warnings are families and individuals who rebel against God, and the, the example there is, don't do what they did. This would be a warning, just in case you're wondering. You don't want a marriage like this. You don't want a family like this. So study it. Pay attention to it. Here's God's priorities for the family. God first. Marriage second. Children third. You get those out of order, you've got chaos. Number two. Finish your life well, and all of us here on the back nine, by deciding every single morning, committing yourself every morning, today I'm going to do it God's way, not my way. Number three, people who try to help God are often control freaks who don't trust God to do what is right, and they think he really needs their help. God really doesn't need your help. You want to control the outcome, so that's why you want to manipulate the circumstances. I, now, by the way, when I say you, I'm me. I'm preaching to Brad here. I'm the number one sinner in this one. God can handle the outcome just fine. Number four, God's people must make decisions based on biblical principle, never pragmatics. It is never right to do the wrong thing, even in the service of a good outcome. And number four, five, the one that gives us hope, the past is irrevocable. You can't change it. But for the Christian, it's not irreparable because God forgives our past and has eternal plans for our future. So we have a future and a hope, Jeremiah 29, 11. Whoa, we're starting Genesis. Get your seatbelts on. This is a book of biography. It is very, very practical. These are flesh and blood people, and uh, we have much to learn from them. I love you all. Now that you know, Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.